By the way, did you know that the the phrase toxic masculinity came out of the mythopoetic men's movement? It was actually a description of the type of bad behavior that comes out of a society that suppresses masculinity. Interesting. Yes, but I am but very, very here excited to, talk about to be else. here with you today. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk about, because this is something I was thinking about, where uh, we often point out that humanity is heading into a dark age, but we also often really complain about apocalypticism mm -hmm. in the Judeo-Christian canon, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look historically, within the Judeo-Christian tradition, there have repeatedly been trends towards apocalyptic approaches to the world. Yeah. Which is to say, you can look at the Millerist movement early in the U.S. There was this movement in the 70s that was some like number code in the Bible. There was Y2K. There was, and this number code in and the Bible. The, the Mayan calendar one. Oh, yeah, the Mayan calendar one. one. Yeah. We just, as, as the Judeo-Christian culture is incredibly, and it doesn't seem to happen with the Zillamite culture so much, specifically, which is part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So what I really mean is Jews and Christians seem <laughs> really, 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 really susceptible to apocalyptic. Love uh, us some end times. Sets. Yeah. Yeah. And these mimetic sets, so somebody's like, well, aren't your views apocalyptic? Because you say we are headed towards the dark age. Mm -hmm. And I actually pointed out something that I don't think a lot of people realize which is that dark ageism, the belief that we are about to head towards a significant and dramatic decline in culture, is actually fairly rare historically in the Western canon. There are people who have said things are worse today than they were in the past, mm -hmm. that it's very different than dark ageism, warning that things are about to take a dramatic decline downwards, but one that you have power over and can uh, affect. Right. Because instead the view is that there's going to be a dramatic end, just an end. It, it's end times. It's not, it's not dark times. Yeah. And so why is this? Because I, because I think this is very interesting. Why, why there's, there's this huge split here. And I think it's because of, well, two things, the mimetic viability of each of these ideas and two, what they imply for the individual, right? So the biggest, if I was going to like sum it all up in one little pithy quote, is that apocalypticism removes responsibility from the individual. Yeah, yeah. Whereas dark ageism increases the responsibility on the individual. Oh, that's where you're going with this. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Well, no, it's 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 true, right? If you yeah. believe that society is about to head in a dramatically downwards direction, yeah, that you don't need to save money. You don't need to build anything. You don't need to invest in the future. You know, you you can invest all in the now. Well, this no, so sorry. That's if you believe in apocalypticism. That's if you believe in apocalypticism. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So if you believe in apocalypticism, you don't have to do shit. Like you can mm -hmm. do whatever you want, right? Like uh -huh. because the world is either going to be destroyed or. And the only thing you need to invest in if you're an apocalyptic is spreading the apocalyptic message. Yeah, getting attention. Oh, that's so hard. Well, it's not just getting attention. Like, obviously, that appeals to the individual, but it also is mimetically useful. Mm -hmm. A mimetic set that is spreading via apocalyptic messaging is going out there and telling people, okay, just believe in the message. That's all you need to do to prevent it is believe in the message. And the number one place you see this today is with AI apocalypticism. And if you want to see our videos on how unlikely AI apocalypticism is, you can look at our grabby, our, our reverse grabby alien theorem video, which I think to me is the most compelling argument I've ever seen on the point, which is basically to say, if it was this easy to create 
a, a paperclip maximizing AI, um, we would see them out there in space everywhere. And if the reason we don't see them is because of the anthropic principle, i.e. we only wouldn't see them in a, a planet that hadn't been destroyed by them, well, then we're about to see them, so it's irrelevant that we're working on them, mm -hmm. right? And there's a bunch of other answers, but you know, watch the video if you're interested in that. But anyway, uh, the, 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 the point here being is that if I, for example, think that, that AI apocalypse is not accurate, right? then I don't need to invest in the future. I don't really need to do anything other than general hedonism. And I can spend all of the money I raise at the financial organization, all of my time as an individual attempting to convert people to this movement. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's quite the different from, from dark ages. People who are like, society is declining right now. We are about to enter a dark age. Because there I am burdened with both raising the the flag about this while also building my own family to be stable in this environment and promoting social policy technological policy and technological innovation in a way that lowers the either extent of the dark age or the severity of the dark age mm -hmm. yeah i it i wonder is is there like a, a catholic versus protestant no, because there's tons of apocalyptic Protestant groups. I'm just trying to get this American tendency specifically. And I haven't really seen this in other cultures, though that perhaps that's just due to my cultural ignorance. They get like really excited about survivalism. I mean, in the United States, there are there are entire industries around, you know, the, you know, building up years worth of supplies of food with your MREs that you have in your bunker and all your guns and your bullets. And like, you know, people are like they enjoy there is an industry that is definitely built around the enjoyment of preparing for a dark age and being ready to go through it what what did you what did what culture drives that because i can't say oh like that's clearly protestant or that's clearly catholic or anything right where is where is that coming from I and mean, why what is it that makes someone a dark ageist rather than an apocalypticist well, I, so so apocalyptic mindsets, I mean, I think through that you can see how appealing apocalyptic mindsets are, especially, mm. and I think the groups that's most susceptible to them are Jewish groups and Protestant Christian groups. Mm. And they, they lead to different actions within these two communities. Within the ultra-individualistic and rural Protestant Christian groups, they lead to this bunker building, right? But I don't think that there's any realistic vision for a societal collapse in which this bunker building is really a high utility action. Hmm. Um, not, not one that we're going to survive. I mean, there's some like nuclear apocalypses and stuff like that. Yeah, but this but... is why I say it's, it seems to me like it's purely recreational because as you say, that's not really how it's going to play. Right. Out. But it is, it is susceptible and, and, and seductive as an ideological set. Hmm. Now, this is a big problem. If you're from a cultural group and you know this ideological set is severely seductive to your cultural group, you need to sort of offset all ideas that are associated with it. I mean, you and I may indulge in prepperism, which we definitely do to an extent. I mean, I, I <laughs> but I understand that it is largely recreational and aesthetic. Hmm. Um, there's some useful bits. No, actually, what am I thinking? I have Faraday bags full of electronics because I'm so convinced there will be a solar flare. No, come on, that's useful. It, it's it, useful. it depends. It depends. It on depends on if there's a solar flare, but you know, right? But that level of prepperism, like I get it. 
right? I but I, I I think that when you're trying to prepare for actual likely futures for our species, it can really over-index you towards futures, which is really interesting. So pure apocalypticism, mm-hmm. right? Pure apocalypticism removes individual responsibility. Yes. Whereas prepperism is a seductive thing, which is different than darkism or pure apocalypticism in that it rewards radical self-ownership meaningfully in a way that society just doesn't. Okay, so you're really trying to separate out prepperism and you're trying to say it's not dark ageism. I would probably say it's just poorly educated dark ageism. I don't think that- No, I don't think it is. Really? No, so it's not dark ageism, it's not apocalypticism. Apocalypticism is about removing responsibility from the individual and, right. and being able to spend all your time on proselytization. Sure, sure, and we agree Preparism is about a world, a fantasy of a world, in which your individual actions can matter in and of themselves in regards to family preparation or family... What's the word I'm looking for? Fortification. So in a prepperist fantasy, right, the things that I do for my family, the trees I plant to grow food, the et cetera, et cetera, there are chickens, everything like that. Like these things do matter to some extent, right? But they do not actually protect my family in a meaningful context. I think there is a fantasy, especially among men, that these things will matter in a meaningful context And that's what prepperism is. It is a world in which individual actions, in which this fucked up society we live in doesn't matter because you as an individual trying to do what's best for your family while ignoring trying to change society or trying to create any sort of larger community Mm. is a thing of genuine value. Okay, so in other words, it's it's cope when you feel disempowered by society and you still want to feel empowered. So you're basically like, Oh, don't worry. It doesn't matter that I'm not empowered in society because society is going to fall apart and then I'll be empowered. But what you're saying, implying then about dark ageism is that it, it is someone who is preparing for a, a worse future, but one in which they are shaping society going forward. Is that correct? Dark ageism is, well, I mean, it's it's about trying to save all of society. Yes. The difference is a dark ageist isn't just trying to save their own family. They're not just creating their own bunker. They're saying, well, okay, they society's not moving in a good direction. I'm going to create an alternative economy. I'm going to create an alliance of families. I'm going to create a city state. I'm going to create a new type of company or government. And that is very different from saying, here's my bunker or here's my complex. Is that right? Yes. Hmm. Is it different I don't really know. Aside from you, who's doing that? Well, I think a lot of people are. I think a lot of Elon Musk are. is doing that because he's like, we're going to bring people to Mars, blah, blah, blah. Right. He is actually trying to build an alternative well, future society or at least a, a different kind of future society. From the yeah, one and I also say that a lot of preppers do this as well. The people who are called preppers, like there's two oh. categories of preppers, people mm-hmm. who are only interested in their own family and, 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 and thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And people who are looking at a larger societal level while understanding that if they don't have a community, it is likely irrelevant for most realistic preppers scenarios. And, and these are two very different things. Hmm. Can you give me examples aside from you and Elon Musk of people who are on the on the the dark ages side and not just prepperism? So they're actually trying to build something for 
society. Well, I mean, post. there there aren't a lot of famous people who would fall into this category. You would need uh, to can look you give me maybe then a hypothetical community. example of in a not famous person, but what they would be doing? Like how well, I would we have friends who are doing this. They are specifically moving to networks of like minded families uh, that intend to share responsibilities that intend to build systems like this among each other. If if you are doing anything like this outside of a network of like minded families, it is. Uh, like a personal indulgence, like a fancy car or something like that. All right. So I'm going to say a lot of Orthodox Jewish groups and a lot of trad calf groups are yeah. like this, but I don't think that a lot of our friends are like this. I think that they're more along the bunker end of the spectrum because they're really just thinking about it for the context of their families. They're not building any larger culture that's scalable they're not creating any infrastructure governing wise or economy wise that would bring them forward. Whereas I can see with various Orthodox Jewish groups and like tradcasts in general, that there is, there, there is something that would start to pick up and build an influence in a future world. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting though. What, what we hadn't come into this conversation with, which is really helping me see things differently is the difference between individualistic prepperism and a sort of noblesse oblige take on collapse, which is now I must rebuild or even an excitement about rebuilding. And well, is- well, no, I'd, I'd say it's more than that. It's a, it's an individualistic prepperism versus community oriented prepperism. Mm-hmm. Are you prepping for your house or are you prepping for your church? Yeah. Are you too- yeah. Or synagogue, right? These are two very different things to be prepping around. Yeah. And they require very different types of prepperism, one of which is actually of utility if you want your family to survive intergenerationally mm-hmm. rather than just you yourself barely clinging to life. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was Which thinking about this. In and of itself, right? Like if you're just clinging to life a bit longer in a world that is collapsing, like you have achieved nothing of meaning. Even even if even if you have kids, right? You have achieved a little bit more of meaning then. But if your kids don't have people to marry, if they don't have a larger community, if they don't have a larger uh, seed of a socioeconomic structure that can come out of the collapse, then you haven't done that much. Especially given all of the things that you could be optimizing for, given the the privileges every human has access to today in this last age of abundance, and the opportunities at play. Like the yeah. fact that you really, really, really could matter to a, a large number of future generations. So that's that's interesting. Now, where do you where do you put Curtis Yarvin on this spectrum? Because now, given what you said, I feel like he's maybe more. At first, I thought he was just on. He's the a dark ageist. He is a dark ageist, and he is a, a, like not an individualistic dark ageist at no, all. No, not at all. I, yeah. I disagree with his thesis on how to fix society, mm-hmm. but he is definitely taking the harder route of the potential routes. Mm-hmm. And he also is a real intellectual. If you look at his mm-hmm. work, you know, as I often said, if you look at like Eliezer Yukowski's work, or you, you, you. Oh yeah. yeah. So that there's the, there's the, yeah. So Curtis Yarman. Yeah. He's actually kind of an idiot. Like he's just like genuinely not like an intellectual powerhouse. Well, and a deep, deep, deep apocalypticist. Right. But he he needs that to justify his lifestyle and decisions. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Curtis Yarvin, I don't agree with everything he says, but he's very clearly an intellectual powerhouse. If you look at his stuff, he he clearly has really sought through things and understand things. I just culturally have disagreements with him. Yeah. But I mean, more in, in the sense that like, 
your faction will eventually be competing with with his faction and other factions i don't even think so i think his faction would easily fold into our faction so mm -hmm. his his preference for monarchism isn't really that different from our faction's preference from controlled and cyclable ships uh, so while we individually may have differences, so let's let's explain what I mean by controlled and cyclable dictatorships. I think governance structures that consolidate power are usually the best governing structures, but that power needs to be expellable the moment it becomes corrupt or inefficient, which is what all of the governing hypotheses that we work on are intended to do. I think that's what the U.S. government was originally intended to do, hmm. although it's also intended to split power a bit more. So that's a, a bit of an inaccurate statement. But yeah, I think that the best governing structures are do have responsibility lie on a single individual or a single small group of individuals, but that individual group needs to be cyclable out. Whereas the core mm -hmm. difference between us and Yarvin is, is he doesn't believe that he thinks that that individual should be chosen based on their proven competence. And if they're capable to be cycled out, that that would cause negative effects on, on the society. Like they would be cycled out for the wrong reason. And he's not insane for thinking this. I mean, if we look historically, like the two, I think greatest figures in demographic history were both betrayed by their own countries. Demographic uh, history. What do you mean by that? Uh, democratic. I said, Oh, democratic. Okay. Democratic history. I might've said demographic. I don't know. A uh, democratic history. So specifically Winston Churchill and Semisticles, both <laughs> were betrayed after saving their democracies yeah. because democracies are prone to do things like that. When a single individual is so obviously right. And so obviously has an understanding of how the, the democracy actually functions and how to make the world a better place. Well, they are in an intense threat to the powers that be within that society. Mm -hmm. And so that society from its media to its other, its other power players to its other elite has every single motivation conceivable to try to get rid of that individual and to try to move them out of the society. And in the case of, you know, Semistocles, he was exiled and he actually ended up, it's really funny. A lot of people don't know this, like the story after Semistocles. So not only did he save all of Greek from the Persians in the Greco-Persian Wars very easily. Like he, he tricked them for people who don't know his story. There's this amazing moment where he essentially tricked the Persians into surrounding a collection of Greek fleets because all of the Greek city-states hated each other and some were planning to basically go back home. And so he needed them to be surrounded so that they couldn't retreat so that they could all fight together. Like, the level of cunning that's required to do that. But then he got <laughs> expelled from Athens afterwards because they're like, oh, the, you know, the average citizen likes this guy too much. You know, as they say, oh, he's a populist. Anyway, he then went to, to this, actually, this region of Persia that actually had holidays and statues dedicated to him hundreds of years after his death because he did such a good job as a local governor of this, like, irrelevant region of, like... Mm, southwest persia i think so he actually went to the enemies and was like okay i'm not gonna help you with like any war thing but i can be like a local governing person or it might have been the greek islands i don't know but anyway i think so it was that's what him. went to churchill for people who aren't familiar with him you know he predicted everything in regards to world war ii he predicted everything in regards to what was going to happen if britain withdrew from india too quickly he was not against them withdrawing entirely but he's like if you withdraw too quickly this is going to have really negative consequences. The The number of deaths involved in the war that was basically, so it, if I may give a bit of history here, what happened here is Britain, 
driven by the pussies who decided, oh, we're going to be anti-colonialists, they withdrew all at once before the Muslims had a chance to migrate to Pakistan and the Hindis had a chance to migrate to India, because that was the idea. You're going to have a Muslim state and a Hindi state. And as a result, there was a, an incredibly bloody war that was completely unnecessary and that could have been avoided if people had listened to Winston Churchill. Just as a side note here, I am not saying that if Winston Churchill didn't have godlike powers and could do whatever he wanted, he wouldn't have kept India in the British Empire. But when he knew that India had to leave the British Empire, which he did accept at one point, he also saw it would lead to this war that could be prevented, and he was rushed to release India before he put in the steps to prevent the war. Also, I'm not saying he didn't have racist views against Hindis. He absolutely did. Potentially, and, and, uh, but it is, I, I think, just if you look at history, I think my reading of events is he saw, in the same way he saw with World War II, where he kept warning everyone before World War II. For people who don't know this, Winston Churchill's biography actually came out before he was elected prime minister before world war ii yeah he like assumed he'd peaked yeah he thought his career was over uh, because he had and, and how did he destroy his career he destroyed his career by constantly telling everyone this hitler guy's a problem this hitler guy's a problem you yeah, don't no, know how big God, this guy's be. a bummer stop churchill yeah and people were like hey man you're being yeah, he, a was, he was super against here. appeasement yeah. yeah and you know to be fair he didn't have a perfect track record you know there was the he got like obsessed with weird tanks or something in world war one and didn't work out but like you know but still yeah, but he, he called that really one really clever shit i mean it was clever it just you know it was like you know, in inventing, you know, web fan before it's time, you know? Well, okay. I mean, he was really important to the strategy. God, what was it called? Operation Fortitude. I'm referring to the giant fake a D-Day operation that he helped organize. I don't remember this. We yeah. D-Day was as successful as it was because of a, a huge campaign. So they had inflatable tanks. They had inflatable. Oh, this one. Yeah. The decoy, the decoy. Yeah. Campaign. But it wasn't just decoys. They also had the dead body of a British high level. Wash officer. up with like the code or something like yeah, with a coded message. It was like, well, they... we're going to invade in this place. We're totally not invading. And yeah, that was so smart. Yeah. Side note here. I had to take pride in between Simone and I, every single one of our grandfather's participated in d-day they did some really clever shit um in world yeah. war ii and then he helped a british citizens get really on board so if you go to britain you will see these cut down fences these iron gates all over britain like snipped off snipped yeah. off and the question is why why would you do that right well so the reason he did that was because he, he told people give us your pots your pans like any wrought iron you have and we'll use it for the war Mm -hmm. says it was completely unusable in the war. They, most of it's at the bottom of the ocean or lakes now. They just dumped it. But it was really important in allowing the average citizen to feel connected and sort of sunk cost in the war itself, which was important in other types of regulations like eating less food so the food could go to the troops, like feeling connected to your kids and everything like that, which helped keep morale up during the bombings and in situations like that. Which is so crucial. He yeah. did just so many, I think, absolutely brilliant things I and mean, had so much absolutely brilliant foresight. And he was completely stabbed in the back politically after the victory. Um, and, and I think that this is just the nature of democracies. You cannot be too successful as a politician in a democracy without being stabbed in the back. So I understand his intuition here. I just think that the alternative is worse. 
any sort of system in which an individual can achieve power. And I think we see this even with people who I respect. Hmm. Like when I look at wealthy people who I respect, like, okay, they've achieved power. They've basically become monarchs of their like little techno empires. Basically. Yeah. But after a while, they sort of seem to go a little crazy. Yeah. No matter how well-meaning they are. Like, I don't want to give names. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that when individuals achieve this level of power and maintain it for like more than a 10 year period, they seem to begin to make decisions that no sane person would make. And I think mm-hmm. that decisions are driven not by them, but by the way entourages build up around these sorts of individuals. Mm-hmm. So they don't have anyone like whispering in their ear, remember you are mortal. Yeah. Mm. By the way, what she's referring to is something that historically in Rome, a specific type of slave caste was supposed to do for Caesars during military triumphs, right? Yeah, I can't remember if it was in general or if it was like one specific guy had like had his man do that. A specific guy. And then yeah. they gave it a specific name or something. Or then other people started copying him because it seemed funny. Yeah, because it's, it was then it be, probably became this like sick, humble brag flex. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I have don't a slave worry. that constantly reminds me I'm not a god. My you know? slave keeps me so humble. I'm so blessed. I'm just so fucking humble. So blessed. So humble. Don't, don't worry. I have a slave for that. It's fine. I have a, oh, don't worry. I'm not too arrogant. <laughs> I've got a slave that reminds me I'm not a god. So yeah. <laughs> I'm covered on that front. I thought through that. Yeah, I have a slave for that. It's fine. Yeah. I, mean, you, I, I can see how you would think I might be a god. I've had that problem before. Yeah. I'm just not one. So the slave helps with that. I I really do think that there is an entourage problem. And I, I, I wonder how to get around that. I know this is way off topic for like, (laughs) for, for dark ageism, but you're right in that there is this sort of success delusion that comes, especially when you have like all these inner circles of, of yes men who really, really, really are incentivized to maintain their position in the hierarchy, not to give you good ideas or like make sure that you're not going off the rails, but to make sure that no one else is getting closer to you than they are. And how do you- You know how you do it? You don't have any friends. Hmm? Spouse. You know, I really, I don't think, I don't, Unless uh, because none I, of these so, people have, have have solid spouses that are that different for the well, yeah, or, or a spouse that they the one that they, they respect and two yeah. that they work closely with. It's just hard for me to think of a very very wealthy success, successful man who actually works closely to and, and listens to their spouse. Yeah, but if you look at history, you see this. Okay, in the founding what? fathers and no, stuff in like Churchill. that. Yeah, yeah, you have uh, Churchill, for example, had a spouse who was yeah. there whispering in his ear always. She was she was a. She was a beautiful, wonderful woman. No, but this this matters. So you see what I'm saying? Even the examples mm-hmm. I'm using, positive spouses who you perceive as your equal are critical to not going crazy when you have too much power for too long. Yeah. Because other than that, everyone is a minion. A spouse, at least one who you really care about, is never a minion. Yeah, that's true. And they also don't have disaligned interests with you. So some people yeah, they, they want you to succeed. Kids. Yeah. The kid always has some benefit from you dying, right? Yeah. You know, whereas a spouse often does not, yeah. unless you're in something like the Chinese system and then that's the, you know, the dowager empress or something. Oh. That's a negative situation to be in. But that's that's I think just because socially and culturally that's like a really uh nonized uh optimization, I guess I'd say. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. So 
what is the the takeaway or meaning or, or importance of distinguishing between preppers, dark agers, and apocalypticists? Well, I think every individual, you know, culturally, if you're watching this, you're probably similar to me. I have a prepper's instinct. I think you have a prepper's instinct. Prepperism can be fun, but remember, it is a hobby. It is not often useful for real societal downturns or the most likely mm. societal downturns in which you will survive and your great grandchildren will survive. Oh, I see what you're doing. So you're socially shaming individualistic prepperism yeah. and trying to take that instinct that a lot of people have and direct it in a constructive fashion, especially in an age at which we actually do believe that dark age is coming because we need people to build the future who aren't just That's Elon Musk because he's kind of busy. And then I think that there is apocalypticism. And I think apocalypticism can only be beaten back by immediately and aggressively shaming it wherever you see it. How would you advise the average person to shame an apocalypticist? Because I mean, even we have like, there are people that we've met who've become apocalypticists. And like, in the end, I feel like you and I are just like, hey man, like, I hope you get through that. I think it's like talking with someone who's deeply depressed. I think that's the key. Understand that apocalypticism is about avoiding personal responsibility, not about logic. So should we, be, should we be acting differently around our apocalypticist friends and just be like, hey. We shame them pretty aggressively. Okay. All right. Mm. I mean, apocalypticism is about eschewing personal responsibility. It's about it saying, is. I am not responsible for the future outside of spreading this one meme that has infected my brain. No, I feel so embarrassed because in the past, we've just been like really empathetic toward them. And, and that's that's actually pretty bad. We should not do that anymore. I mean, we aren't outright mean, but I, I will say that if they're talking to me, they definitely get a sense that I think that they're pretty pathetic. I guess so, because you're that one kind of person where, like, you just walk away from people at parties if you feel like they're not useful. Like, yeah, no, just, I do you that. You just turn and you walk in the opposite direction. <laughs> and, like, and you cut the conversation short so people, like, have no ambiguities to, like, how you feel about them because you just don't talk. Well, it's like, like, what are you working on? How are you trying to make the world a better place? And they're like, yeah, uh, then they start complaining and you're like, oh, okay, great. And then you like, leave. oh, God. And then I, I'm sitting there talking with them uselessly for, like, 15 minutes. And then you get, well, I try to pull you away. I'm like, I know you're like, Simone, you have somewhere to be. Yeah. So, dear friends, if you've seen us do this. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we're, we're dealing with short timelines. We have to fix things and we have yeah. to prepare things for the next generation in the last age of opulence. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Love you, Simone. Love you too. <laughs> oh.